This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, welcome back. Welcome to the Sour of the Program. Rob Breckenridge with you on a Wednesday afternoon. Looking forward to this next conversation, I think. I still remember, I think it was fourth grade and just doing the first kind of sex ed curriculum and the boys get taken out of the room. And I knew, I knew the girls are going to be talking about something maybe I'd rather not be present for. And here it is. I'm in my late 40s, married, father of a young woman. I think I've maintained some of that, uh, that ignorance. Maybe it's society's fault to some extent. Why is this such a taboo topic? Well, joining us in studio today, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, OBGYN, best-selling author, Dr. Jen Gunter, author of the books The Vagina Bible and The Menopause Manifesto. Her latest is called Blood, The Science, Medicine, and Mythology of Menstruation. The book's out now. Uh, Dr. Gunter's in Calgary. An event happening tonight as part of WordFest, wordfest.com. The Bella, uh, Bella Concert Hall, 7 o'clock tonight. Jen Gunter, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So why this book? Maybe it speaks to the whole question around stigma or taboo, but kind of what, what triggered this for you that you needed to write this? Yeah, I mean, I guess we'd say, well, why not this book? Because yeah. I think that we're not talking enough about uh, about the menstrual cycle, about menstruation, about the unique impact it has for people who menstruate. And I mean, your experience of, you know, of being taken away and hearing about a different thing, perhaps, than yep. the girls in the classroom, very common. Um, many people don't even have any access to even some basic information like that in schools. And the the result is people are graduating knowing more about frog biology than human biology. And we see really real world consequences. And so I just, you know, I think of myself as someone closing gaps in health communication. And I just felt this was the next one to work on. Yeah, like this is something and probably, you know, you could trace it back thousands of years. I mean, something that's so fundamental to human existence, yet it's so taboo. It's so stigmatized. Like, why is that? Yeah. I mean, every single person who's listening to this is here because someone had a menstrual cycle, right? So yeah, so we're all here because of it. You know, I think it's a complicated um, mix of the early Greeks thinking that this was, you know, a a sign of toxicity Mm -hmm. and, you know, early patriarchal beliefs, women were inferior. So menstruation was a sign of that. Um, You know, there's taboos about blood and lots of different cultures and societies as well. And um, when when you add these things together, it's just really a way to sort of you know, weaponized biology against half the population. So, yeah. And unfortunately, these these beliefs have persisted, you know, far longer than they should have. Mm-hmm. In terms of what it is, I mean, you know, humans aren't totally unique. I, I think there are some, maybe also some primates that, that basically have menstrual cycles. But for the most part, you know, humans are kind of unique. So why? First of all, why is men, are menstrual cycles a thing? Yeah, so most animals have an estrus cycle. So, you know, they, they don't have any menstruation. There's no blood that comes out and dogs actually have estrus. People always say, oh, but, you know, dogs menstruate and they don't. Their bleeding is actually from their vagina, so it's different. Uh, so the menstrual cycle, only um, bats, the elephant shrew, uh, the spiny mouse, some primates and humans have a menstrual cycle. And for humans, anyway, we believe it's, you know, 
likely part of resource curation for reproduction. So the menstrual cycle is is a way that helps us uh, manage a very invasive placenta uh, because uh, the human embryo is very invasive. It wants a lot of oxygen. We got big brains to grow, yeah. right? <laughs> um, so there's that. And also many people have heard the, the statistic that, you know, 70% of early pregnancies end in miscarriage. And that's actually due to the lining of the uterus, which actually has an ability to sense abnormal embryos and trigger an early miscarriage far before people would know they were pregnant. And so these are are ways to help, you know, produce a generation that is going to help produce another generation and keep going. So it's it's sort of part of evolution. Right. And I was going to say a byproduct of evolution. So it does, you know, does convey some some advantage, right? There, there's a reason why that evolved. Yeah. I mean, for every species, everything, you know, giraffes have a long neck because that helped them, you yeah. know, eat, eat at, you know, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a zoologist, but you know, that, that <laughs> no, helped right, them yeah. eat things other animals couldn't, so they could, they could grow, and and so yeah. So for us, this is the unique way that we figured out how to sort of manage. Humans have a really difficult energy balance with pregnancies, so our pregnancies are very long. They're very, and they suck up a lot of energy. Being pregnant has the same metabolic effort as doing the Tour de France, just to kind of put that in perspective. Oh, wow. Then you have to survive childbirth, and then you know, ten thousand years ago, the only option was breastfeeding, which is even more metabolically demanding. And then you have to raise a child because humans are so uniquely vulnerable. If you're a giraffe, you can drop your baby five feet. It stands up and it's walking after you and eating, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. not what humans are like. So when you think it's like this 10 year biological investment to get a kid to the point where it can sort of feed itself and basically look after itself, you want to really curate your resources. You know, other animals have litters, other, you know, so we have different ways to, to curate our resources. So, I mean, you know, part of writing this is about informing and empowering women. Is this a book for men? Where, where do men factor in? Do men, should men understand this? Absolutely. As you know, as I said earlier, everybody has benefited from the menstrual cycle. And we need to get away from this idea about only half the people needing to learn half the biology. Yeah. And I think that the more people know about it, the better. That's how you get rid of shame. Then, you know, when you talk about what's happening to your body, you're not going to see shocked faces in the room. People, oh, yeah, I've read about that. I've heard about that. <laughs> right. But, you know, if you're a guy, you, you might be married to someone or have a lover who has a menstrual cycle. You might have a daughter. You might have a friend. You know, my son is 20 and he's very openly gay and he keeps menstrual products in his bathroom for, you know, any friends that come over, right? Like he, you know, he carries ibuprofen with him in case people need it. Like, you know, we're all part of a big community. And I think that the more people know about the menstrual cycle, the better. And if you're a parent, you know, you don't want your child to be exposed to the same prejudices and patriarchal influences that, you know, your generation was. Hopefully you want to do better and learning about it would be a way to help help break those cycles. There are still a lot of myths uh, and, and maybe some of these myths are born of ignorance. I, I imagine there are even people who think they know a lot about this topic who probably fall for some of these myths. The one I've heard a, a zillion times, you know, the you get three women living mm-hmm. together, they're all going to end up on, on the same cycle. I, took that for granted forever. That, that's not true, is no, it? No, it's actually a myth. There's no biological way that could happen. It's also been studied. And, you know, a lot of these myths just come from the fact that people don't know. Um, but some of them have really misogynistic underpinnings. And for that one, it's really, you know, positions women as being like seasonal breeders. They're right. like affected yeah. by, yeah. you know, they're they're like a ca- they're like cattle. And so I think it's really important for people to, 
to stand firm against the myths because learning less about your body doesn't help anybody. Uh, and there are also those who capitalize on those myths. And it's something you write about in this book, and it's, it's a big focus of yours, right? The so-called alternative health industry and how they can capitalize mm -hmm. and profit from a lot of this ignorance. How, how does it come into play with regard to this topic? Yeah, it's a really big problem. So, you know, is we see it with weaponizing disinformation about fertility, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, oh, if you take this medication, it's gonna make you infertile. If you take the vaccine, it's gonna affect your fertility. Oh, you know, if you're on the birth control pill, that's gonna affect your future fertility. So there's those types of issues. You know, then there's all kinds of scammy supplements and tests that are offered as a way to to you know, offer you sort of diagnostics or therapy for menstrual cycle problems that can't possibly help you. And part of the problem is there are gaps in medicine. And when people come in and they get dismissed, they often turn to people who have you know, less training um, and, and or less scruples. And, uh, and that's a real problem. And so when you can teach people about their body, then they know if they're getting good information or bad. Does some of this play off the stigma too, like the idea that um, you know, there's something unclean or impure about menstruation, these natural products that, that you know, do, do they play into that? Oh, absolutely. So wellness uses the language of purity culture, yeah. pure, clean, natural, organic. These are words that harken back to getting in balance with nature or God. Um, if you think about the 1700s and before, medicine and religion were very similar and medicine was all about balancing the humorous. And so this is all, of, that's that same language. And so I always tell people, you know, the, you have to be very careful about when people use that terminology, they're using it to avoid the science. And for a woman's body, it's particularly problematic because purity culture really means that the language of purity, that means that we're trying to hearken you back to an unspoiled state, mm -hmm. you know, and that's just a really awful way to think about, you know, female biology. Right. So part of understanding what's, what's happening, you know, to, to a woman, to a woman's body is, you know, it's knowing what to watch out for, knowing what red flags are with, with some of that message. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the same thing for health in general, right? Yeah. There, There's red flags all over the place for healthcare providers, and it's certainly not limited to, you know, reproductive healthcare. However, because this is something that is cast in shame, because this is something that people don't talk about in quote, quote, polite company, where else do you go then? So you go to the people who are talking about it. And if the people who are talking about it are these wellness grifters, then you're you're entering what we call like a data void. If there's no good people talking about it, all you're going to hear are those bad voices. You know, like I said, when, when the boys got taken out of the room and the girls were, were left to talk about this, you kind of assume, okay, at least girls are getting what they need to get. But maybe they're not. Like, it's probably a surprising number of girls that get to that age and don't know what's happening to them. I think it's it's really rare that people would graduate high school understanding the biology of the menstrual cycle in a way that would be scientifically meaningful mm -hmm. and through no fault of their own. That's right. the educational yeah. system. Um, I think that, you know, they're, it's often lumped into sort of quote, quote, sex ed, um, which is really how not to get pregnant or how to put a condom on a banana, right? There's really yeah. very little useful information in it. And it's so funny, this idea that we're going to talk about this, like what do people really think is going to happen? People are going to like combust into flames. They're going to, everybody's going to just get pregnant spontaneously in the room. I mean, there, you, you really wonder what people are afraid of and what they're afraid of is knowledge. Because when you have knowledge, you can make decisions about your body and you become a more difficult person to control.
control. Yeah, it is odd. I, I don't know why it's sex ed, but it, it definitely was, as, as mm-hmm. I recall it. And I mean, you know, Alberta's now moving in a direction where we're going to have an opt-in. Like, parents have to opt-in their kids for sex ed. So I think that's going to mean more kids miss out on that. And if that's where these conversations are happening, yeah, they're going to miss out on this. So I would say that the person who came up with the opt-in, um, it would be a terrible person. I would say that, that would be somebody who's invested in children learning less. They're invested in controlling the population. Um, it's a very, very dangerous message because first of all, when you say opt-in, the implication is that it's dangerous or shameful, right? So parents yeah. who aren't paying attention are going to be, oh, well, why would I want to opt into that? Right. But knowing how your body works is not going to make anything bad happen. Uh, And so people have to realize that they're being exposed to propaganda about this um, and nobody is ever served by less knowledge. How much of this ties into some of those broader conversations around women's reproductive health, whether it's access to birth control, the abortion debate, is it all kind of tied together? Well, sure. I mean, if you can... uh, have people learn less about their menstrual cycle, it sure makes it easier to pass restrictive laws about abortion because people might not pick up on the red flags that are in there. Um, we've just seen in the United States, one of the states uh, has come out saying that, you know, you can't uh, do IVF anymore because, a, you know, an embryo in a Petri dish is a human. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that people in Canada should be uh, very concerned that everything that's happened in the States could very easily happen up here. And the way that starts is with ignorance. When you don't know then you you know these laws don't sound bad to you right you're like oh well, how's that going to affect me that's the impact of a lack of knowledge so what do you hope this book can achieve? Well, I hope it helps to course correct. I hope mm. that people start, you know, the fact that I'm even on a radio show talking with a guy about the menstrual cycle is pretty revolutionary. This isn't something yeah. I could imagine 15 years ago. Having these conversations so people know it's not shameful, that that they know that they should be learning about their body so they can advocate for themselves and make informed choices with their own healthcare or politically, because there's a lot at stake. Do you believe Parliament should make it law that pornography websites have to verify the ages of users so uh, minors can't access their material? And would a future government of yours do this? Yes. We. Okay, so that was Conservative Leader Pierre Paulia responding to a question with a pretty short answer. But this relates to a bill that's working its way through Parliament, started in the Senate, Bill S-210, that would require websites that uh, provide access to explicit material to have age verification. Seems simple enough. Pornographic material should not be viewed by minors. But enforcing this might be a, a different story. And it's that question of balancing online expression, internet freedom with protecting kids. It's a balance that the government says it's trying to strike through its own online harms bill. Everyone can agree. Uh, that kids are vulnerable online to hatred, to uh, violence, to being bullied, uh, to seeing and being affected by terrible things online. We need to do a better job as a society of protecting our kids online the way we protect them in schoolyards, uh, in our communities, uh, in our homes across the country. We need to make sure, and I think we can all agree, we need to protect our kids uh, online. Now, how to go about do that is a very careful balance. We need to make sure we're protecting freedom of expression. We need to make sure we're protecting uh, the freedoms and the rights of Canadians while we protect kids. 
Well, we do need to strike that balance. Whether either of these bills will do that remains to be seen. Now, we haven't seen the online harms bill yet. Bill S-210 has mentioned working its way through Parliament. Our guest has been watching all of this very closely. Dr. Michael Geist, the law professor at the University of Ottawa, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, much more michaelgeist.ca. Uh, Michael, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So, Turbo, let's start with the online harms bill, because we're still at the point of waiting to see what this is going to look like. But it sounds, based on what the government had promised, that this will be pretty far-reaching. What, what are you anticipating here? Yeah, I think it's a great question. If we look at what they proposed earlier on, it certainly was very far-reaching, and it was seemingly was universally criticized, even from those that uh, the government thought they would have on board. So I'm expecting something, frankly, a lot less, and frankly, even less than what the Prime Minister suggested, the idea that the government's going to come up with legislation that's going to protect kids from lawful content that may raise some harms, so-called awful but lawful content, strikes me as pretty unlikely, to be honest. Um, I think that they are more likely to target uh, the clearly illegal content, things like terror content, mm-hmm. uh, child exploitation, uh, hate content, and look to find ways to get platforms to have a duty of responsibility to act reasonably when it comes to that kind of content. So. I'm cautiously optimistic that they will have taken the lessons from the last consultation and come up with something a bit more reasonable, but of course it remains to be seen. What we're hearing today is that maybe part of this is going to involve creating a new ombudsperson to oversee all of this. Does does that make you more confident, or what do we make of, of that? Well, that's pretty consistent, actually, with what they proposed earlier on. So they earlier, several years ago, proposed the Digital Safety Commissioner. This sounds like they're revisiting that. You know, I, this government often has a lot of emphasis on process. I, I'm not sure that the, the process here is going to be all that helpful, but uh, in fairness, there is a need to find a way to deal with, someone's got to deal with these issues. Um, I, I think I'm going to be pay more attention to the liability kinds of questions and the scope of the legislation in terms of what it covers. The, the mechanics of it, I think, are important, but more important will, will be the question of what does it cover? Uh, and what sort of liability is there to to see whether or not we'll get compliance and whether or not we'll get pushback from some of the companies that are most likely to be affected. Well, it sounds like that bill is imminent. Let's talk about this other one, Bill S-210, which is working its way through Parliament. The government doesn't support this, but it sounds like there might be enough support from other parties for this to succeed. Now, you know, the story the other day, this has echoes of other controversies. Uh, Pornhub uh, says they might cut off access to Canadians in response to this law. So what, what do we need to know about Bill S-210? We need to know it's a terrible bill, and that I'm having a really hard time reconciling the, the Pierre Polyev and the Conservative Party's you know, strong position on Internet freedoms with their support for this legislation. I, mm-hmm. I frankly just can't make sense of it, um, because if this was just about targeting uh, pornography sites, I think you'd have a reasonable discussion. But if you look at what this legislation does, it is overbroad. It covers far more than Pornhubs. It covers quite literally search engines like Google, social media sites like Twitter or X, they're scoped into it. It includes court-ordered website blocking of those sites that would be then served on various internet providers who'd be required to block access to what is otherwise lawful content. Um, And it invokes the use of age verification technologies that, you know, some other countries have rejected and that clearly raise privacy concerns. It simply is it maybe may identify a, an issue that a lot of people are sensitive to but its solution raises a huge number of red flags 
Let's talk about the technology because I think people get the idea of online verification. You know, back in the the analog era, uh, someone attempting to to buy a, a nudie magazine or a, an adult DVD would be asked to show ID. But in the digital world, how might this actually work in practice? That's a great question. And what we know right now is that the companies that sell these technologies are they're some of the biggest proponents of this legislation. No surprise there. They they see the prospect of of selling the technology to others, um, we know that it's not the same. It is different from having a government-issued ID that you're providing to a, flashing to a customer or to a merchant. That's very different than providing that government-issued ID to typically a foreign-based company or having that same company engaged in some sort of facial scanning to try to identify or guesstimate with your ages. And we know that where they rely on that, so they sometimes they'll say, listen, we're not going to ask for that personal information. We're just going to take a, a scan of the face. The problem is that it's not very accurate technology. You're trying to distinguish between someone who's 17 and 18. The technology just is not accurate when it's trying to do that. So as you mentioned, I mean, you know, there, there is adult material that one can find through Google that can be found on Twitter. We're talking about a potential scenario where in order for Canadians to use Google or use Twitter or these other platforms, they would need to upload a, a picture of their ID or upload a picture of themselves just to access those services? It's crazy, and it sounds crazy as I say it, but that's exactly what this can lead to. And, and while the, the, the chief proponent of this legislation, who is, who is its creator, Senator Mathilde Duchesne, uh, she's argued, listen, you don't have to do that for all of Google. It's only if you access this kind of content. But, of course, we all know that, uh, that the, the, the ability for this kind of content to surface on social media or on search is pretty high. Uh, are we seeking out that we're going to require Google to, to, to sort of before someone even types in a search or once they type in a search query, say, sorry, I can't resolve that query for you unless I verify what your age is. You know, this is this raises fundamental access to information issues, services that people rely upon either to express themselves or to access information. And we know that many other jurisdictions where they have at least considered this legislation have said that at a minimum, you need a threshold. You need yeah. to say, we're targeting the porn hubs. We are not targeting search and social media, yet incredibly it seems that that's exactly what this legislation does, and it's designed to do. There's no apologies being made for that. They say, we'd like to ensure that it covers that. And also, just to be clear, then, if those companies didn't do that, uh, that under this legislation, the government could use the power of court-ordered website blocking to, to block these, these websites. That's right. So there's liability if you fail to comply. And then for foreign sites... And we can assume that many foreign sites won't comply with Canadian laws on this front. Uh, it creates the framework of having going to a court and having those sites blocked. And so when the government, when the proponent of the legislation, government's against it, when the proponent of the legislation, or frankly, the conservative NDP in the bloc, who all voted in favor of this legislation, mm -hmm. sort of come forward and say, well, we want to ensure that people can still access lawful content. That's not what S-210 envisions. It actually explicitly states in the bill that one of the outcomes of this legislation is that otherwise lawful content may be blocked. Uh, is there a way to do this responsibly? And if we want to focus on the porn hubs of the world or, or OnlyFans or these websites, because sometimes these online, you know, you, you, 
you go to like even a website for a, a, a beer company and there's a drop down menu. What's your age? And you can just enter whatever. Like some of what exists is kind of a joke. But is there any, do we have the technology? Is there a meaningful age verification system that can address these concerns? Well, I think the, the place to start, frankly, is with parents. And, you know, filtering technologies can be used to block out certain kinds of content. Mm-hmm. If the concern is kids are using their phones or using the Internet connections in their homes to access content that parents deem inappropriate, let's make sure parents have the tools and the knowledge to ensure that they create limitations on what parents can get, on what those kids can access. You know, if we're talking, trying to create analogies to the offline world, parents had the ability, if it was television, to say, listen, after 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, you're turn, we're turning off the TV, or there are certain channels we're simply not going to allow you to watch. Uh, it's the same here. You can get parents with the, the tools and the technology to try to deal with this. Uh, and uh, to me, that's, that's at a minimum the starting point, is to give parents the power to better control or to better oversee the access that their kids have in terms of what they're accessing online. And that's, I think, where you start. You don't start with trying to verify everyone's age who runs a Google search or streams through Twitter. Yeah. We'll keep a close eye on uh, this bill as it works its way through Parliament and keep an eye out as well, the online harms bill. We're expecting to see that soon. Much more on all of this. Michael Geist.ca. Michael, uh, appreciate the insight as always. Thanks for joining us here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Dr. Michael Geis, law professor at the University of Ottawa, where he's also Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. So get an overview of some of the problems around these approaches. So it's interesting how, you know, the conservatives and liberals are taking aim at each other, taking aim at the bills that they respectively support. But both are pretty problematic. And, yeah, I think the conservatives have done a good job on some of these bills and calling out you know, the government's overreach when it comes to trying to regulate the Internet, but now they want to do it themselves. Uh, so you heard, we played for you earlier what Pierre Pauly have said about the online harms bill and Justin Trudeau's hypocrisy when it comes to hate speech and his own history of, you know, demonizing political opponents or in, in younger years wearing blackface uh, for kicks. Uh, so the prime minister was asked to respond to that today. Mr. Polyev hasn't even seen the legislation we're about to put forward next week. He's already telling people exactly what it is and what it isn't. I think responsible leadership is about dealing in facts, actually reading a piece of legislation before uh, he starts telling people what he think it does, uh, and then having a rigorous debate in Parliament about how to best protect kids. He's not interested in that. He's interested in hurling insults, in distracting from the fact that he has no plan on housing. He has no plan on child care. He has no plan on fighting climate change and creating good jobs for the future. He has no plan in terms of building and protecting the kinds of jobs here in Alberta or across the country that people are going to rely on in a transforming world. What does he have a plan for? He has a plan for stoking division, creating fear, throwing out personal insults. That's not leadership. Canadians deserve a government that is focused every day on building a better future for them. That's what I'm doing here today. He can throw whatever insults he like. I look forward to having substantive debates on how we're going to fix the challenges Canadians are facing because we're busy doing that while he's busy ranting. Okay. Interesting thing to say after quite a rant there. Uh, Look, I mean, there's a track record here of what we've seen from this government in terms of overreach 
in trying to regulate and control the internet. It's very reasonable to be suspicious of this online harms bill. But sure, okay, let's wait and see what this entails, what they intend to do. Maybe they've learned from the past. I'm not optimistic, but again, I haven't seen it. So sure, it's it's fair to withhold criticism of a bill until you've seen the bill. All we've really got from the government is kind of a broad overview of what they want to do or intend to do. Like, okay, that doesn't amount to much. The devil's always in the details, as they say. I think for Pierre Polyev, though, it's fair to ask him some questions or criticize his approach when it comes to this other form of internet control and censorship. Like, I think if the liberals were proposing something similar, Pierre Polyev would be tearing it to bits. But the idea that the conservatives would support Bill S-210 and all that entails, the idea that if you want to be on Twitter or you want to use Google, you're going to have to upload a photo of your ID And if these websites aren't requiring that, the government could potentially block access to them in Canada, all because we're trying to prevent uh, those under 18 from seeing explicit images. Admittedly, that that it's not hard to find on on the Internet. There's got to be a better way of addressing that without this kind of sweeping government control. Simply say any website or any platform that you could potentially or theoretically find that sort of content is going to fall under this. Like, that's pretty crazy. In a couple of days, in fact, a few days, it will mark the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. An invasion that Russia said wasn't going to happen or that apologists for the uh, Russian regime said wouldn't happen. Uh, But it did. Uh, And it has been, uh, at times, a, a rather brutal invasion. So far, arguably an unsuccessful invasion. But as we enter into the third year of this conflict, could that change? We seem to be at a bit of a tipping point here, where maybe Western support has started to wane, or some fatigue is starting to set in, or some isolation is starting to set in, in particular in the United States, which could lead to an erosion of the support for Ukraine and open a door uh, to the potential for a Russian victory. And what would the consequences of that be? Now, for its part, you know, Canada has uh, maintained, at least in terms of our stance, steadfast support for Ukraine. In practice, though, that that hasn't always been there. Uh, But ultimately, there's only so much we can achieve on our own. We need our allies to be there as well. Europe still seems committed to the cause, and obviously they're much closer to it. A lot of it all hinges on the United States. And uh, as we see in Washington, there is some real division and some real uncertainty as to whether U.S. support is going to continue to be there. There was the hopes of a deal. Republicans said, look, we can get some movement on Ukraine if we get some movement on the border. It seemed like there was some agreement uh, from the White House, some of the Democrats, but uh, that deal ultimately went nowhere. And it's pretty clear, looking at the Republican Party, including the front runner in their presidential primary process, that... Um, Maybe there's, there's a willing just to walk away, that they just don't want to support Ukraine anymore. So what might all that mean? Well, someone who has spent much of the past couple of years on the ground in Ukraine has written extensively about this situation, about the real pressing danger uh, of uh, a Russian victory, is a journalist and columnist with the National Post, Adam Zivo. You can read his latest at nationalpost.com. The headline, U.S. political gamesmanship over Ukraine aid will result in disaster. Adam, so good to have you with us here today. Welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks for having me back. 
Uh, before we talk about, you know, the debate in, in Washington and, and elsewhere, I mean, what, what's your sense of where things are at as Russia seems to be doubling down on, on this invasion? They, they've seemed to have made some gains in, in recent weeks. Where are we at? Well, so I've been living in Ukraine for the most part over the past two years, but I haven't been in the country for the past two months. But what I can say is that from all of my conversations with all of my Ukrainian friends and contacts is that there is a growing sense of despair and anxiety uh, because people are aware of the fact that uh, should the United States fail to send weapons to Ukraine, that there is a very real possibility that Ukraine could fall, which would mean countless civilian deaths and mass misery. And this is something, to, to give an illustration of what this might look like you know, on the ground, you have who have been living in major cities that are far away from the front lines, for example, in Kiev, Odessa, and Lviv. And they've been able to survive and have some kind of functional economy and some level of normalcy because they have anti-air defense systems that shoot down all the drones and missiles that are sent their way. Well, now, after two years of this, there's the worry that without Western weapons, there will be no rockets left to intercept these missiles and that suddenly, no matter where you're in the country, uh, you could die at any moment. So the situation is really, really dire. Right. And in a way, I, I think that's that's affecting the debate. I mean, there's a sense that some are putting forward that what's the point or, or this is hopeless, right? And in, in addition to some of the fatigue of, of two years of this, how did we get to a point where there was, you know, enthusiastic support for Ukraine in the beginning, but that's waning? Well, the problem is that the West was too slow in providing weapons to Ukraine. And there was always this worry that if you provided weapons to Ukraine, that that would provoke Putin and escalate the conflict. But anyone who's familiar with the politics of the region and Russian foreign policy knows that Putin is not provoked by aggression. He is provoked by weakness. And so we delayed in giving, for example, javelins to Ukraine and other weapons and tanks. Um, and when the Ukrainians were finally able to counterattack after using what meager weapons we gave them to take back basically half of their occupied territories, uh, they found that the Russians had had enough time to lay extensive landmines all throughout the border, uh, which prevented the Ukrainians from making any headway. So there was this perception that there was a stalemate, uh, even though the stalemate was something that the West had, in a sense, created by being wishy-washy on support. And then people got exhausted and they said, well, what's the point? A stalemate is not interesting. It's boring. And yeah. they thought it was going to stay that way. But in modern war, where there's attrition, these kinds of stalemates can fall apart very quickly. And we might find that in a few months from now, you could have Russian soldiers at the gates of Kiev. And this exhaustion will seem so frivolous compared to the precarious world we'll find ourselves in at that time, should that, should that occur. Well, which brings us to the other factor here. Uh, you know, we see it in, in U.S. politics, maybe to some extent in Canadian politics, that the sense of indifference, that, that you know, why, why should we care? I, I think maybe even underneath all of that, there, there almost does seem to be, I don't know, some, some support for Vladimir Putin, or at least not opposition to the idea of, of him starting to, to march into Eastern Europe. So, you know, as to that question, though, Adam, why does it matter? Why should it matter? Well, because if Putin managed to take Ukraine, his, he's not. He'll go and take the Baltics. He'll probably end up attacking Poland, and you'll see a widespread war in Eastern Europe, and and that's destabilizing, and that could easily impact us. Uh, for example, if Western allies lose their faith 
in the United States' commitment to its allies, you could see Japan start to remilitarize, which it's already doing to a certain extent, and renuclearize uh, because Japan is afraid of China. Uh, you might see more conflict in Europe that could spill over into the North America. Uh, I know that on the Canadian side, what I'm primarily concerned about for our interest is Arctic sovereignty. We're surrounded by oceans, right? The only real security threat that we have right now is securing our north. And the main threats to our Arctic sovereignty are Russia and China. So I think on our end, uh, investing into Ukraine's success is a relatively meager uh, short-term investment. It doesn't cost a lot of money that pays off in the medium term when it comes to protecting our north. Well, I mean, further to that, from a Canadian perspective, and, you know, the prime minister, when he speaks, likes to take the moral high ground, right, that, that, that we're there for Ukraine. We've always been there for Ukraine, even if the Americans are wavering somewhat. But in practice, I don't know, Adam, has that, has that always been the case? No, it, it hasn't been the case at all. We, we barely gave any money. Um, we often didn't follow through with our commitments. Our failure to actually deliver a $400 million air defense system is a perfect example of that. We said that we were going to do it, and then we didn't. We, At the very beginning of the war, we said that we were going to reopen our embassy in Kiev, and then we lied about that and didn't do that for several months. We only donated four tanks to Ukraine because it turns out that half of our tanks are broken, and we decided not to be honest with the public about that. Uh, or and we didn't and we decided not to, for example, consider scrapping these tanks or like using them for spare parts. So it, it feels like we've kind of done the bare minimum possible uh, while trying to get headlines for looking good. And and that's one of my contentions with the Trudeau government is their politicization of this issue. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Now, in terms of what's happening in Washington, I mean, there there was some hope that maybe there was a deal because the Republicans said, well, let's get some some action on the border. It looked as though maybe there was an agreement, but we haven't seen, seen anything move forward yet. Um, so what's your sense of what the, the mood is in, in Washington or the likelihood, I guess, uh, of something passing here? Well, I mean, the sense that I get here is that there seems to be a small civil war happening in the Republican Party. So you have this far right faction, which is under the spell of former President uh, Donald Trump, and they love Russia because I'm going to be frank here. They're idiots. They don't know that Russia they don't understand that Russia is not interested in being friends with the United States, that Russia is an adversary of the United States. And many of these MAGA Republicans uh, just very credulously accept any Russian propaganda narrative because it can be used to embarrass the Democrats. Uh, they think that, for example, which is absurd. Anyone who spent any period of time in the country would know that that's not true. Um, and because they, in a sense, have been brainwashed and because they're, they're willing to sacrifice Ukraine and undermine uh, the United States' security interests uh, to score political points, which I think is appalling. But then you have this other faction of more sane Republicans who realize that this is a generational crisis and you cannot let Russia take over Eastern Europe. And they're infighting right now. And I think that as the Ukrainians start to see more defeats, I think the MAGA Republicans will start to look more ridiculous because people will see that there's a cost to this politi- to these political games. Do you see the, the death of Alexei Navalny as, as being a factor here? Has as it maybe helped to wake people up to the reality of what Putin is? Does it affect these conversations at all? To a certain degree. I mean, I think the timing was in the sense 
And this sounds kind of evil to say, but hilarious, because here you had Tucker Carlson, who had gone to Ukraine, sorry, had gone to Russia to provide a softball interview and basically act as uh, Putin's propagandist. Right. And then he went to like shopping malls mm-hmm. and three stores in Russia and said, wow, Russia is amazing, uh, <clears throat> which was absurd. Uh, and then in the middle of his propaganda tour, Navalny dies and well, he's murdered. And, and I think that that I think Navalny's death, in a sense, reminds people of the fact that this Russophilia you see in parts of the American right is ridiculous. And I think that there was almost good timing here. Uh, because it happened at a point when discussion over aid has been so critical. Welcome back. We've been talking a lot about interest rates as of light. You know, as uh, the Bank of Canada has tightened monetary policy to respond to inflation, they've raised their benchmark interest rate, and that's led to hiring borrowing, higher borrowing rates for, for well, basically all Canadians. Uh, you know, those who are getting a mortgage or renewing a mortgage, uh, you know, the prospect of higher interest rates. Um, but depending on your situation, you know, the, the interest rate you pay on a loan might vary. And for those with bad credit, for those uh, that are seen as high risk, that those loans would typically come with higher interest rates. Now, some of those rates are, are, are viewed as predatory or, or that, you know, consumers are being gouged. And it's enough of a concern that the federal government is looking at regulating all of this, reining in some of those lending rates, imposing a cap on those interest rates, all in the, the name of protecting consumers. And on the surface, that might seem noble. Uh, you know, that somebody's paying a, a ridiculously high interest rate, maybe over 30 uh, percent uh, on an annualized basis. That kind of feels like gouging. That doesn't seem right, doesn't seem fair. Uh, so the federal government's uh, going to step in. So we'll see what that ultimately looks like. Um, but here's the concern, though. There's a reason why those rates are higher for some borrowers. We can't ignore in all of this that higher risk that, that some individuals have. So the big concern here is not that we'll be protecting those people, but we'll be blocking loans for them altogether, that they just won't be able to get those loans in the first place. And is that a, a desirable result here? Well, joining us to talk more about it, someone who wrote a great piece on all of this, you can find it at financialpost.com. Jeremy Kronick is Associate Vice President and Director of the Center of Financial and Monetary Policy at the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhowe.org. Jeremy, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So give us a bit more of an overview, if you can, here, of of what it is the government is, is trying to do. Well, Rob, I think you actually summarized it very well. I mean, I mean, what they're trying to do is crack down on predatory lending with the idea that the interest rates being charged uh, to certain people are, to your, to, you know, to use your word, they're, they're gouging people, right, and, and taking advantage of people and putting them into uh, a cycle of debt that, that would really, um, you know, crack their ability to, to live a normal life. And so they're trying to crack down on that. But like you said, the, the issue is that it depends on what, uh, you know, what the rate should be for borrowers who are what we call non-prime. So prime borrowers are those that can access loans at, you know, pretty normal interest rates from a a bank, from a credit union, whereas some of these folks, they can't, right? They're called Mm -hmm. non-prime borrowers. And there's different reasons people are non-prime. Some have checkered credit histories. Others have no history at all. If you think about immigrants when they first come to Canada. So, you know, basically the government is saying, well, there's this, you know, this market failure that these people are being gouged. 
And in some cases it's true, but in other cases it's not. And, and the issue is you've got to prove the case uh, that you have this market failure, and then you have to decide what the optimal rate is, which is why we don't typically you know, think governments are great at setting prices, because there's a lot of work to figure out what the optimal price is of a good or service that you're not uh, yourself selling. So uh, you end up with this kind of problem, and so we often look for different ways to get you know the appropriate price into markets, competition, terms and conditions, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, and, and, and the government just really hasn't made the case uh, in a sense. There's some gray area here. I mean, it, it is interesting because there is a, a provision in the criminal code that sets a, a, um, a limit for what's considered a criminal interest rate. So we have that as kind of a, a, a pretty clear line. But otherwise, I mean, is, is the idea of predatory or gouging, like how subjective is that? Well, I mean, so this is what we're talking about in the sense that the, that maximum criminal interest rate was 48% APR at an annual rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're saying, well, that's not high enough. It's still allowing a lot of predatory lending. Uh, and so we're going to lower it down to, to 35%. And I think the focus is very much on sort of the payday lenders and, you know, the, the, those kinds of uh, uh, groups. But there's a whole bunch of uh, lenders who offer pretty normal terms and conditions for their loans uh, that have normal businesses, uh, but that charge rates that are pretty close to that 35% level. It obviously sounds like a lot to people who are used to paying, uh, you know, the rates that they're paying, uh, you know, in, uh, now and, and, and in the past, 7%, 8%, whatever the loan is. Um, but, but if you have a very checkered credit history, there's a lot of risk for financial institutions. And as a result, they can't charge those those normal rates. And and so the government is saying, well, you know, we think the number is closer to 100,000 people who will be affected by this change. And some of the lenders, Canadian Lenders Association, put out a number. They think it's closer to 4 million people. So even if that's oh, wow. too high and 100,000 is too low, if it's somewhere in the middle, that's a lot of people who are paying uh, that interest rate. And even if half of those people are, uh, you know, that's the right number, let's say, and I'll put that in quotations, you're, it's a lot of people who are going to be affected by this change. I think for a lot of Canadians, too, I mean, especially those with a good credit rating, you know, we, we, we have the ability to kind of laugh in the face if a bank says, well, I'm going to charge you 30% on this mortgage or this, this car loan. Uh, well, you know, we can tell them where to stick and we'll, we'll go somewhere else. We have the ability to shop around. There's competition for our business and that, that keeps those rates lower. So why is it then that some folks find themselves in a position where that's their only option? Well, I mean, so that's, you know, that, that's a good question, right? I mean, there are just a lot of people who are, you know, face either one of two scenarios. One where they have a history of, you know, not paying back loans they've taken out. And then once you get into that situation, it's really hard to get out of it, yeah. right? Uh, and then we have other situations when people first come to Canada, right? They don't have any credit history. Um, and the same, so the same, they have the same risk profile to a financial institution, um, that those with checkered histories have. And mm-hmm. so there's a question as to, you know, whether, whether financial institutions have that right. And that's where things like open banking, which we've been terribly delayed at getting off the ground, can really help, right? Where, um, you know, there's more competition and better assessments of true credit uh, risk. And, and you see this in other jurisdictions around the world where they have implemented open banking. And there's much better uh, competition and much better assessments of people's true credit histories. And that's one of the suggestions I made, that instead of focusing on, you know, bringing down the price or bringing down the interest rate, you look at other other ways to increase competition and have more accurate assessments uh, of people's credit. 
Yeah, because that's the thing with this, right? So we look at these rates and we say, okay, a lot of people are paying too much uh, on interest. We'll lower those rates. We'll save them money. We'll pat ourselves on the back and, and move on to other issues. But it's, it's not that simple, is it? No, it's not. I mean, it, it isn't that simple. We, we, we do need to, uh, you know, we need a more comprehensive plan here, I think is really what I'm sort of getting at in this piece. We need, you know, to me, government's regulating prices. We don't have a great history of price controls. <laughs> and interest rates is a form of a price, right? And so that's really a last resort measure to my mind. What we want to be doing is, like I said, looking at ways to, uh, you know, make the terms and conditions clear, which will weed out bad actors. And we need to look at ways, like I said, to, you know, increase the competition in the lending space um, and and look for ways to make sure we're getting the right uh, credit scores, right, for people. I mean, if some immigrants come here with great credit histories back home and would be great here too. And, you know, we're just not, uh, we're not giving them the, the sort of the appropriate loan uh, for their histories. Right, because, you know, we're potentially creating a situation where people at least have access to a loan now that might be closed off. So if we create a situation where fewer people are able to get loans in the first place, are we better off? Is, is that a desirable outcome? Well, that, so, so this is a great question because what we've seen in other jurisdictions where they've tried to put caps in is, you're right, what ends up happening is you get less loans towards, let's say, the non-prime sector. You end up with more loans towards the prime sector uh, and, and sort of lower average size loans. So maybe that's what you want. Uh, there's a case to be made that from a macro perspective, that's a better outcome. But the, the degree to which the, the non-prime uh, lose out is much greater than the amount of loans that are going to the prime sector. And, and you know, again, some of those non-prime borrowers are, uh, you know, potentially going to do good things uh, with the loans they take out. And so... Uh, I'd rather see the market kind of make that uh, that choice than have the government set uh, you know set the price themselves. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me Rob at seven seventy chqr dot com. Talk to you next time.